Thanks for tuning in to the Athletic Scholarship Corporation Radio Network. Heard worldwide on www.athleticscholarshipcorp.com. Your source for college recruiting help, training advice, motivation, and more from pro athletes, coaches, celebrities, and entrepreneurs worldwide. Hi, how are you? Great. And AJ, what's your last name? H-O-D-E-L, Hodel. Okay. And what's your preferred title? Uh, I'm getting tired of being called founder and CEO, but that's what I am. And we have a culture of a, a team environment here. Okay. And um, can you tell me how long you've been in this um, business of helping high school students find recruitment opportunities and um, athletic scholarships at the college level? Twelve years. Twelve years? Mm-hmm. And can you tell me a little bit, like one of the girls who I'm also interviewing for the story, she's at Tulane, um, and she plays basketball. Can you tell me how um, a little bit of what does a high school student need to do if they want to explore the opportunity of getting an athletic scholarship at an NCAA school? And they have to worry about their uh, academics first. I think that's, you know, one of the crucial points of standing out aside from athletic ability. But to be prepared, they should start early, um, look at opportunities and turn over every stone they can. And, and a lot of people kind of pick their wish list of two or three schools, and when it doesn't work out, they get frustrated or they don't look at, you know, even lower level D2 or even D3 schools. Um, but, you know, the I think the simple, you know, if you had to go one step, one, two, three, would be, um, you know, do the NCAA eligibility registration that's required. Um, even look at NAIA schools, which is a different, you know, governing body in at college athletics. Um, you know, look at the academics and obviously work on your, your athletic uh, ability. It's my understanding that the NAA, in, you know what I mean, only has um, 600 student athletes, but it's a lot smaller in terms of size. Well, the size in the schools are, you know, they're limited in comparison to NCAA, and obviously um, they do hand out a lot of money, and there are opportunities for, for student athletes. So, I, and it, ironically, even though they're limited, it's not people don't really, not everybody knows about it, so they don't really go after that. Or these kids always have, you know, the D1 dream, and they hold on to that often until it's too late, and then they fall down into the D2 or D3 or NAI. So I think, you know, those those kind of programs are a filter, and they, they're a catch-all for people that, you know, fail on their top-end dream and you know, not really fail. It just doesn't work out. Not everybody, and as you know, being a reporter and working in the numbers, less than 1% of these kids actually compete in college sports, let alone scholarship level on Division One. So so how many would you say ends up being maybe 1% to 2% that actually get an athletic scholarship in the NCAA overall? I'd say that's a pretty accurate number. Um, you know, looking at the NCAA's report, that that's the numbers they reported. Um, they always like to kind of – push the under 1% rule, but it is 1% to 2% that gets some sort of money 
Um, but then when you look at actually competing and getting a full ride, that number gets dramatically decreased because there are some sports that they don't have to give full scholarships like football does. Um, you know, you have some equivalency scholarships or partials and for example, like baseball. So it's, it's different by sport. Um, how is it in terms of just because one of the student athletes who I'm speaking to is a basketball, ladies basketball, how does it work in ladies basketball? What division is she? Do you know what division she's playing? She's playing. Okay, yeah. Then you have uh, limitations on how many scholarships you can get um, in, in women's basketball, division one. Um, and it obviously it carries based on how many are on a roster and how many are offered out. So some of these scholarships, there might be a young lady that's on a four-year deal, so they've got to allocate for those four years that they offered her against their headcount. Um, some girls, like I interviewed one of our former clients, was a Division One track, a female track star who, you know, had to renew her um, scholarship every year. So they actually get reassessed and evaluated, and the coach determines if they're going to give them a scholarship again or not. So some of these kids lose it in year two. Um, it's kind of a false sense of um, are there certain um, sports, when you look at it, that just like if you were to look at men's or women's, that generally offer larger on average award amounts? Like football, when I look at it in terms of the stats that were gathered by scholarship stats, had um, around 18000 for football, but that was um, NCAA for FBS, um, followed by gymnastics and hockey. Um, does that seem like it's in line, or sorry, hockey and then gymnastics? Does that seem like it's in line from what you've seen? Yeah, it is. And and then I know when you sent me a, a message on social, it was more of you know which schools or what programs give out the most amount of money. And you know, let's use um, football as an example because that's the highly touted, most competitive. Uh, you know, every everybody's parents are going after that football scholarship because there's 85 available um, in a program. But if you look at UAB, uh, for example, their Division One program, but they, you know, kind of fiscally couldn't carry the program. So when you look at these programs, the Ohio States and the and, and as you know, the Big Bowl um, competitive series, those type of schools are making the money, so they they have the endowment to fund these, you know, scholarships. Everybody's allowed to give out those eighty-five scholarships, but can they actually do it? Is the question of the day. And an example of UAB, they could not. They could not fund the program. They couldn't make sense. They cut the program. And then now there's been a lot of backlash, and they're bringing it back quickly. So um, I think winning programs are always going to be able to obviously fund those programs. It's common sense, and that's why it's so competitive, and that's why they pay these coaches three, four, five million dollars salaries a year because it makes money for the school, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um. But when I'm looking at this, I mean, obviously football is king with, with a lot of the athletic scholarships. But when you look at it, the other sports um, like hockey and gymnastics, why are those coming in second and third? You know, that's a good question because when we assess and look at it, you almost go, where's the revenue coming from? Um, you know, gymnastics and ice hockey, obviously I'm a football guy. I'm a football fan, and that's our, our biggest um, revenue for our organization to help these student athletes. But, uh, you know, I would say there's a lot of private funding and obviously the money's coming from somewhere. Um, you would think basketball would be number two and, and that's ironic. I know hockey is a different, um, paradigm. So is lacrosse. I mean, there's a lot of money out there in lacrosse. 
So I, I think when you get into those other ancillary sports, you see a lot of private backing and funding and, and donations, um, and that's how those are getting funded because these schools just can't carry all these programs, uh, you know, self-funded. Um, when I spoke to um, the public um, affairs over at University of Michigan, um, does it take really a bigger school to have, like Michigan, to be able to afford the max and all the headcount that you see for some of these sports? Like, are, is your best bet as a high school athlete if you're doing tennis or, you know, rifle um, to go for a bigger university? And the numbers would it would indicate, and that's a great question, the numbers would indicate that you should, but I think everybody's, you know, has to carry their own individually, but those programs do help each other internally. So the football program may raise so much capital that the athletic director has enough cloud or, or communication with the other teams that it's helping fund those teams. Because some of the, the tennis and some of those programs, they just can't really fund it on their own. They've got to collaborate. So from the economics of it, yes, I think your question would lean towards, you know, go to Michigan or larger school. It's got larger school enrollment, tuition. Um but the school, the small schools get by, and they give the scholarships, and they're funded to do what the NCAA says that's available. So, but if you're trying to get it, I don't know if necessarily going after Michigan is for everybody, because maybe you're not a fit, you're not that type of profile of athlete, if that makes sense. Sure, sure. And then in terms of, um, you know, the average awards are obviously higher at private universities because they're covering the cost. I think I was looking at Tulane and Vanderbilt, and they're well into like forty or 50000 in terms of their average size scholarships they hand out. It's all relative to how much they charge for their school. I mean, you even look at the Division three schools, and you see thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars $50,000 tags. Obviously, you know, when you're a parent or a student athlete and your comparison, your comparison is a D3 school, that's a private liberal arts school, that's tagged at 40000 a year, and you could go to a Division II school that's 22000 a year. It, it, it's all the economy's relative. I think when we consult our clients and we look, they're so close in, in the economics and the package that they get that sometimes it's a tough decision because you're going to pay 12000 at one and ten at another. So it's so close that these Division three and, and even higher expense schools have to be competitive. Unless you're Harvard, Cornell, you know, that brand, it's a totally different animal with, with the Ivy Leagues that we see in the recruiting process, totally different. Who ends up going to the Ivies? I mean, obviously there's no athletic scholarship. There's not, and I've had private conversations with coaches. We've had several clients, even if you go to our testimonial um, feedback page and you can listen to some clients, there are actually some kids that from the athletic standpoint, if you just looked at them as an athlete, they couldn't play at a lot of Division One smaller schools. Um, you know, you traditionally used to be the double A's and, and now are categorized different depending on what sport. But um, they're really not always the standout athlete, but they're always a standout character, and their academics are obviously high. Um, but I have seen and talked to coaches that even though they're not athletic scholarships, there's maxed out money and earmarked money somewhere to get the best kids to at least have a winning program. They have to. Um, but – they're not athletic scholarships. So if you're a great player, and I just worked with some kids this year. We always do personally. I have my own personal clients, and our other offices have their own. And we've had some kids that really could change a program 
and are just gifted athletically, but they were two points off on the ACT or SAT, they just don't waver from it. And that's why they're prestigious. So they have a plan and they stick to it. Um, but, you know, then there, I think there was that article, like, maybe in January of, like, the two um, Harvard college football players that have been in, in the NFL in the last 10 years or something. It's rare, but occasionally does happen. Um, Kaepernick? I mean, Kaepernick's one. Yeah. Well, he's, not and, doing, he's not doing well. He's not doing too well, but he's in there. Um, yeah, I, you're, because they're not the best players. I've seen some kids that I personally, if I ran a mid-sized to small market D1, I would say I have to pass on them based on athletic ability alone. But when you look at the sum of, of the parts, they're they're great for the program. They're necessary. Um, and how does the how is the, the world in terms of um, women and men soccer? Do you deal with much of that in terms of, of, of athletic scholarships? Yes, and ironically, we're starting a brand called Pink Recruiting, um, and, and it's going to tie into a lot of the female initiatives and and long term investment and donations. But um, the female student athlete, even though we have Title IX and different things, the awareness and the competition is a little different than. Than male, and I think that's because football prevails in recruiting, um, and that's where the media likes to follow. But you get into women's soccer, like you said, lacrosse. Um, it's it's pretty competitive. A lot of camps, a lot of showcases. Uh, but I, I still have the kind of the position with my clients, and I consult them to say, hey, if you have a good young lady with good grades, that's better than average in their sport. There's a lot more opportunity out there. I don't know if you kept up. I know you work in this, this type of industry in the education and the numbers, but um, I don't know if you read in the past few years that there were some schools that got caught kind of fudging the, the names, um, using a football player's name that was deemed ineligible or, or maybe got in trouble with the law, and then they took that scholarship and that ticker and the name and changed it to a female name and literally reported that to the NCAA. So that tells us there's a problem, that they're still not finding all the qualified female student-athletes which is alarming to me. I can't figure out why they can't because I can go to any school and find a solid young lady that can play her sport that is deserving of some sort of money. But, you know, they've they've had it in the media for several years that, um, you know, the two biggest problems is finding the female student athlete to comply with the rules. And the other one is the Division three schools and even the Ivy Leagues getting sanctioned or self-report because they give preferential money to student athletes. It happens every day. It's like 83.3% got in trouble for giving more money to a student athlete with the same need and same grades as just a regular incoming freshman. So how is the 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 new rule from the NCAA in terms of being guaranteed um, the scholarship for all four years that you're in attendance impacted the way things are done? Well what sport are you you commenting on that? Because football it's still not that, that's not effective. You've still got year to year programs. Okay. Which ones does it affect then? And these deals are based on what the school offers. The NCAA, um, is, there's dialogue and it's on the books for review. And I don't think any changes from my understanding, and we have a compliance officer that deals with that, but in my readings just last month that a lot of these bylaws are things that they're looking at for review specific to football and some of the larger recruiting sports, they're still year-by-year year renewable. But you can offer a four-year guaranteed, 
it depends on the prospect, really. If you're a big-time program and you've got a certain player you got to go after, you, you almost have to give them that four-year deal, even a five-year deal, because you've got a red shirt. So I've had clients personally that were big-time prospects that got you know, a four-year plus, so they're working into their fifth-year school, grad school. Um, for example, one right now, the Florida quarterbacks, one of our former clients, Austin Appleby, transferred from Purdue. He's going in his graduate program now. He's still got a scholarship. Um, but most of them are year to year, but they can be. sports or? I'm sorry? Is he switching sports? No, no, he uh, he just switched and transferred um, okay. football player. And then that's prominent. Anytime a coach leaves or gets fired from a program, you see an NCAA allows you actually this semester to transfer without penalty. Usually if you try to transfer or go, you know, from a two to one or go up, they're going to make you sit a year. There's so many different rules on how they handle it, but one of them is if the coach leaves because, unfortunately, most of these kids and parents buy into a program because of the coach. And then if the coach leaves, it's a different relationship for that student athlete. But, you know, these kids got to be careful with injury. And and I've personally have a staff member on our team that was a Division One big-time athlete, um, had a heart condition, and – went through the medical process and the surgery and the steps, and two days late past the medical clearance, someone delayed his paperwork, something as simple as getting a fax across. The NCAA was aware of it, and they pulled a scholarship, and the school said, good luck, we found somebody else younger and ready to go, and just threw him to the wayside over not getting a fax in the right time. So it's a dirty business. Uh, It really is. Thanks for tuning in to the Athletic Scholarship Corporation Radio Network. Heard worldwide on www.athleticscholarshipcorp.com. Be sure to tune in next week for more college recruiting help, training advice, motivation, and more from pro athletes, coaches, celebrities, and entrepreneurs worldwide.